Oh, go away. I can't. You can't podcast with children around. Go on, scram. Shoo. So, episode... 17. Hello. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of the world-famous Katsu Ted Pot. <laughs> I'm Garnet Amethyst and Pearl and Stephen, and I podcast with... Danger Mouse. <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> um... <laughs> Have you seen the rebooted Danger Mouse? No. Uh, yeah, it's not good? bad. Okay. It's actually not bad. Yeah. We're having endless problems here with Skype. You've now gone really quiet. I'm struggling to. Really? Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there could be problems my end as well. I don't know. It's been okay, known to happen no, well. in the past. Okay. My right. input level's still looking good, so I think it's something on the way. Well, let's just okay. So uh, let's just see what we what happens. Yeah. Okay. Right. So we have an agenda, and I'm going to start off with some F U. F U, Darren. F U, John. Um, Now you know that thing where humans look at words and say them, and then don't actually literally read them. You just guess. Yeah. What you yeah so that's why you miss all those little words in sentences when you write things. Uh, this also happens when you look at cash for questions because uh, <laughs> last episode we dealt with a cash for question from regular reader David Eden. Thank you, David, for your cash for question, <laughs> and he sent in a question about Cape Buffalo, and uh, I said, oh yeah, Cape Buffalo, and immediately launched into this tedious um, <laughs> thing about. Um, domestication which is odd because his question wasn't about that at all didn't even ask about domestication once now as is tradition i don't have the question in front of me now and i can't really remember what he said but it was something along the lines of is it true that cape buffalo are really dangerous it wasn't like can cape buffalo be domesticated i think it was something like, like this okay i think it was is the reason cape buffalo haven't been domesticated is because they're dangerous right I think uh, well, that was something. The question was somewhat along those lines. Whatever. So it's my to do with the danger is, of Cape buffaloes. My recollection is that it wasn't, but let's say it is to save face. Um, so I went and checked the mammalogical literature, and uh, and Cape buffalo do indeed appear to be particularly formidable compared to other cattle. And uh, in fact, if you check, I've got. Jonathan Kingdon's Volume 3C of East African Mammals, the bo- one of the bovids um, things in front of me, uh, volumes here. And, um, yeah, they're, they're like anti-predator defences, uh, specifically of Cape Buffalo, are, um, uh, yeah, they're really, really, like, top-notch relative to other bovids. So much so that... Um, that I, I, it doesn't mean that you know impervious to predation because obviously they're not. They will get killed by lions and whatnot, and humans. But um, there's cases where, like in a herd, there's individuals that have got like three legs and stuff because they're that good at looking after each other. So um, 
defences are so good in the buffalo that predation is normally not a major factor in population control. This fact has made the buffalo an interesting subject for... St- blah, 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 blah. goes off on a tangent there. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, that'll do. There you go. So, yeah, there you go. Looked into that. Right. That's interesting. Uh, would, you know, hang on, would you know that just from looking at their skeleton, for example? No, you wouldn't. No. No, right. you would I do no. think that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I think, and in fact, about... I think... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I think you might assume, based on just anatomy, that other species were more formidable or more difficult to, you know, mm. uh, subdue or kill. Like, for example, the, the gore or gower is, like, bigger and scarier looking. The uruk is bigger and scarier looking. But but maybe here it's the, the social system is, uh, is, is, is paramount. Which we might guess it is anyway, based on our own, you know, what we know about our, our own behaviour. You know, we it's well known. People say that humans are relatively defenceless animals without our weapons and tools, but we're not. You know, <laughs> humans are an unstoppable killing force, uh, and, and and clearly it's our technology and our social behaviour that makes us so formidable. So yeah, yeah I think that trumps. Uh, as much as I hate to use that term these days, that that gives the one-upmanship or one one-up personship. Sorry, to uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, I mean, obviously they're fairly big animals anyway, so you know they've got the opportunity to do something like this. Yeah, if they're really yeah. small. I don't think it would make that much difference. But yeah, yeah they're a big, formidable animal with a social system that allows this. Then yeah. <laughs> Well, there's you, you. You might have seen. I've I've not seen it in real life. I've only seen it on TV. But these amazing cases where uh, a group of Cape buffalo basically seem to come back for revenge <laughs> when, when it's like uh, you know lions have. Uh, okay, so there's two things. There's either where um, lions have attacked a Cape buffalo herd and have su- successfully downed a calf and they're killing it and the herd run away in fear. But then five minutes later, the entire herd comes back <laughs> and rescues the calf. There's this famous piece of footage. We might even have discussed it before on the podcast. I think it's called Battle at Kruger. Mm. And a, um, a Cape buffalo baby is subdued at the edge of a waterhole by a group of lions then uh, and and they're like you know throat strangling it and you know gonna start eating it any minute really and the the adults run away and then a crocodile <laughs> grabs the baby and starts pulling it in the water and there's a tug of war between crocodiles and lions the lions win and get it back on the land and then the lion the, the, the baby's still not dead the um the the ad, the entire herd comes back and fights off the lions there's like there's literally lions getting tossed in the air you know cartwheeled up in the air as adults uh, are, are throwing them around and they get the baby back the baby's still alive and it comes back to life as it were and rejoins the herd and leaves with the herd so there's that kind of there's that kind of stuff where they they come back and you know rescue their own but there's also in the tv series the bbc series big cat diary there was a case where buffalo were ambushed while passing through a marsh uh inhabited by the savuti so-called marsh lion pride um and the the next day a bunch of the buffalo came back and found or tried to find the cubs of the lion in the area which looked like they were trying to kill the cubs even though the cubs weren't involved in the predation which uh, i don't know certainly had the ring of like revenge or <laughs> wiping out yeah. the predators uh, maybe i'm you know reading too much into it but it, it really did look like that so if you if you're a lion you got to think yeah it's just not worth it 
just go yeah. for a different sort of animal. Yeah, but then lions have learned that they can kill Cape Buffalo, haven't they? So it's one of those things where... Yeah, but then you factor not... in the revenge. Yeah, you yeah. can kill one. Yeah, you can. But do you really want to? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe they don't know that. Maybe like, maybe maybe some or most lions don't know that because they're, uh, they're not too opportunistic. I mean, they do tend to be kind of boring and traditional and conservative lions and most other large predators. Anyway, we could do a whole discussion of this, but let's not. Um, let's move on to... Insert jingle here. News from the world of news. Dun, dun, dun. News from the world of news. Uh, there's, there's like a million things that we could cover. Loads of exciting stuff. We're both especially busy at the moment. I've just been away working at a museum and... It's holiday season, and oh my god, today is A level results day, so I've got that to contend with later on. No, I don't do A levels, but Will has recently done his A levels. Um, okay, I want to talk about two technical papers briefly. Number one, uh, Ruchira Somarira and a list of colleagues publishing records of the Western Australian Museum observations of mammalian feeding by Australian freshwater crocodiles in the Kimberley region of Western Australia. Now, everyone knows, everyone who knows anything about crocodilians will know that there's the big, robust, chunky, skulled animals like the Nile crocodile and the saltwater or Indo-Pacific croc, which regularly take big mammals. Then you've got slender-snouted, more gracile sculled crocodilians classic example is the gharial also the false gharial and the australian freshwater crocodile which are predominantly fish predators and are generally thought you know generally thought to to not be able to or willing to tackle uh, biggish mammals but of course again anatomy is not destiny animals can change the i don't know not it's very difficult to know which words to use here. What I'm trying to say is they don't necessarily obey what you might think based on their anatomy. Sometimes they will, air quotes, break the rules for whatever reason. And this paper is about the slender-snouted, um, longirostrine Australian freshwater crocodile. Uh, in this case, not following the rules, not just eating small aquatic prey like little arthropods and fish, but actually uh, killing and consuming medium and large-sized mammals, uh, including macropods, that's kangaroos and wallabies, a large rodent and an echidna, they say in the paper. And they've got some really nice photographs of um, uh, freshwater crocs with uh, water rats. Water rats are this water rat is about as long as the skull of the uh, croc. And there's a photograph of another one with a short-eared rock wallaby, which again is an animal of yeah, pretty pretty decent size. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so there you go. I mean, there's there's a lot of data in this paper. They're talking about they're talking about crocs that are about three meters long that are um, consuming have been seen consuming mammals that are like up say 15 kilos i think that i think in the paper they're talking about them feeding from carrion rather than actually killing live ones hmm. but um but yeah it's it's stuff you wouldn't predict from skull morphology is the point yeah 
Yeah. And As usual. Hopefully they don't take it too far. Because when you visit Australia in the Northern Territory, you can swim in a lot of places, but there where you only have freshwater crocodiles and not saltwater crocodiles. <laughs> but if the freshwater crocodiles get too much of a taste, well, hmm. <laughs> are they going to start nipping legs off and things like this? Well, well, some of these, you know, saltwater, sorry, freshwater crocs can get to, I mean, certainly they're talking about individuals here that are nearly three metres yeah. long. Right yeah. now, I don't care whether it's an animal with a, with a slender <laughs> snout. I do not want to be swimming near a crocodile that's nearly three meters long. And bear in mind, of course, three meters long is not big. But you know, people you talk about a scary croc. You're talking about one twice that size. Not for this species, but obviously for saltwater crocs and Nile crocs and American crocs, etc. Plus, there's cases of the gharial, which is the slenderest snouted and most piscivorous of crocodilians. Uh, there's, there's a couple of cases where gharials have attacked people. I don't know that they've killed people, mm. but I think they have, like, you know, grabbed their hands or something. And again, that's... Uh, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. slender-snouted, but they're still a formidable-looking animal. I don't want to get bitten by one, that's for sure. I wouldn't, I wouldn't enjoy it if I did. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go, so that's that. Um, and another paper, which uh, this time is on fossil reptiles, uh, Ramon Nagasan and uh, Donald Henderson and Jason Anderson, published in Royal Society Open Science. A method for deducing neck mobility in plesiosaurs using the exceptionally preserved Nicosora borealis. Nicosora uh, is a leptoclided plesiosaur, mm. and uh, the specimen is is beautiful it's like nearly 100 complete and fully articulated not very big the whole specimen is about 2.6 meters long mm -hmm. and it's preserved with its neck in a fairly elegant curve now if you know anything about plesiosaurs we've discussed plesiosaurs at least a couple of times on the podcast yeah uh, way way back we did a really awful thing on good god i, I really hated it the thing on taxonomy and phylogeny and that was just terrible um i don't know how much we've said about like biology and behavior a functional morphology of plesiosaurs. Maybe we haven't touched that at all. Mm, yeah, a little but, bit, but not not a lot. Mm, yeah, go ahead. Again, you could do a whole you could do a whole discussion on this because yeah. uh, a lot of um, mileage, well, a lot. There's been a lot of discussion over their remarkable necks. Of course, they can have exceptional cases. There's over seventy vertebrae in some of the super long necked elasmosaurs, um, and uh, given that they had these very long, seemingly flexible necks, were the necks really flexible? And if they were, you know, how did they use them? And um, without going into this, I don't want to go into this in too much detail because, like I say, you talk about for ages and ages and ages. Um, there was a time within the recent couple of last couple of decades where you had some people pushing the idea that the necks were actually pretty inflexible and there was very little play in between the vertebrae and um i think that seems to be one of those things where the people that have said that haven't been sufficiently familiar with the flexibility present in the necks of living animals and how you can actually determine flexibility and um from the work that i've done on you were at that giraffe section weren't you when we dissect me mike taylor and yeah yep. at, the royal, at the royal veterinary college we dissected a juvenile giraffe and some of that data was relevant to work we later published on sauropod necks um basically there's so much cartilage capsules well, all the cartilaginous stuff around vertebrae just just 
changes the whole game. And as paleontologists, people tend to assume that, or paleontologists tend to assume there's little play between the vertebrae because you can't actually get much sort of movement out of them. Yeah. From the you can't get much movement out of the dry bones, but once you incorporate the cartilage, that yeah, you can get a lot more. And uh, this team they CT scans um, the articulated vertebrae in the computer. They worked out possible range of motion, how much play there is between individual vertebrae, and cut a very long story short they basically got you know, a pretty reasonable degree of flexibility mostly in the side to side plane the lateral plane mm-hmm. and they've got diagrams where they show the neck basically coiling in a circle essentially in a circle so they're saying that this animal nickelsora could yeah move its neck you know really really far out to the side the neck is really flexible they didn't find so much flexibility in the up down plane the dorsal ventral plane now, this isn't um, – oh, and they also ground-truthed their methods on uh, a monitor lizard. So mm-hmm. they did exactly the same stuff on a monitor lizard, and they got pretty good degree of both up, down, and side-to-side movement, basically matching what you can see in live monitor lizards. So I think they're te- they, they do establish their technique and everything is reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they make the point that, that what they say for Nicholsora isn't necessarily the case for all plesiosaurs or plesiosaurians, whichever term you prefer, um, because they're not they're, they're, there's a lot of variation in their necks. We're talking about a group of animals that were around for you know a crazy length of time, more than 150 million years, and some other people that have looked at this have found greater up-down flexibility than side-to-side flexibility in other plesiosaur groups. So they're not saying this, this is like you know one... Yeah, style of movement. One style of flexibility fits all, but uh, yeah, I, I certainly would say that the the, the take home point is that all the studies that have now looked at this, uh, um, Maria Zamet published some stuff, Mark Evans done some stuff. I don't think he's ever properly published it. Um, these guys, there's also a new paper by Leslie Noe and, and colleagues. Interesting paper, I guess. Um, they all do say that there is, yeah, uh, yeah, the necks were flexible. I think this is a really interesting little case of why did we go the other way? Because intuitively, those necks look flexible. Heaps and heaps of vertebrae, right? And for years and years and years, that's just what people thought. Yeah, this is in some ways snake-like. You know, there could be a tremendous amount of flexibility and um, lots of the old pictures show them in double curves and things like this. Um, But then... Someone comes along with a counterintuitive idea. Oh, no, no, it looks it looks flexible, but it's just not. And mm. everyone goes, yeah, <laughs> mm. for a while. And, and I do think that was kind of interesting. The, the hold that a counterintuitive idea can take, you know. Yeah. I mean, I know I mean, it was so- backed up by people saying, well, if you actually look at the, the degree of motion between each vertebra, perhaps a bit naively, not accounting for cartilage properly. But yeah. even so, I think the lack of pushback on it immediately was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think to be fair, it was one of those things where now, now a really, a really interesting subject is that if you take something like plesiosaur neck flexibility, and you want to know what people have said about it, okay, there's like I've been to many conferences and meetings. Mm. 
yes, there are dedicated, you know, marine reptile meetings, fossil marine reptile meetings, where it's the thing people talk about. You go to the pub and everybody has this discussion that lasts a couple of hours where everyone's talking about please on neck flexibility. Yeah, everyone uh, talking about small community of researchers. So you get the impression that it's much discussed, right? It certainly is much discussed. But in terms of what is there in the published record, you find there's like four or five papers. There's a Russian guy called Zarnik who published some stuff in the, the mid 20th century. Then you've got Zamet Evans and this new study and Noe et al. And one or two other things. You basically, you're basically talking about six or seven publications that comment on this. Now, the the alleged stiffy neck thing wasn't really um, elaborated in in print. It sort of became known, I think, um, Mike Overhart, who's written a really nice book called Oceans of Kansas, I think he covered it on his website. Mm-hmm. And I think from there, it sort of became like internet known. Yeah. And that's why that's why you and I can say it's regarded as like a fairly familiar um, uh, proposal, but it, it never was really well established uh, in print. And in terms of why people accepted it for a while, I mean, I remember I when I heard about this, I thought that's interesting. Maybe that's actually right. I think it's because there are so many subjects, this is one of them, where to be on top of it, you have to have considered and analysed, like let's say at least like 10 different things. And it's quite easy to to notice one or two problems, which you can find with any aspect of anatomy, right? Everything, everything you can think of about anatomy, like how does a jaw joint work, how do wrists bend, there's like, yeah, but I don't understand that bit and that prevents me from thinking of it in this way, with plesiosaur necks, the weird thing is that some of the long-necked ones have got quite tall neural spines, and one of the arguments was that if you imagine the neck bending upwards, the neural spines seem to prevent it because they crunch into each other. And also the zygopopoces, these like articulating sort of tongue and groove things that are present along the upper surfaces of vertebrae, in some plesiosaurs there's some really weird stuff going on like the zygopoposes are sort of fused or don't appear to you know or or they've united into like a single unit some really weird stuff that you just can't get your head around and i think if you fixate on those things and i know from discussions with plesiosaur specialists that some people have fixated on those things they're like yeah but i can't you know i can't understand how there's that (laughs) and at the same time something like you know the zarnik super flexible model is possible and so, so ultimately, in order to have like a air quotes real answer, you know, a biological answer, you have to have analysed, yeah, like I say, like ten different things at least, and you analyse enough of those, and they might outweigh the weird stuff. But the things that we fixate on as problems, in cases, turn out not to be problems. But it's difficult to know that until you've done that that work. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, invertebrate is so complicated and difficult to understand and kind of fiddly and annoying in some ways. I find thinking about all their parts irritating compared to thinking <laughs> about, like, yeah, an elbow or even a wrist. Um, right. <laughs> and what's the biggest problem? What is the biggest problem with working out how something like next, next work? I think it's the fact that, okay, we're, we're always, always, always talking about this with fossil vertebrates. We're always talking about the fossil vertebrates. So we think, let's go and see what people have done on living animals. Let's look at long-necked birds and giraffes, etc. And, and the, I'm sure I've said this before, certainly uh, a tetrapodology and probably on the podcast as well, biologists have not done this work. There are not published studies on neck function in long neck birds, on giraffe necks, on ostrich necks. Those studies 
do not exist. Okay, some caveats, some caveats coming. Yeah. These studies do not exist. So, so we think paleontologists playing with bones look at these joints and think, ooh, this can only work in this way. But paleontologists have not got, and this is not meant to be negative towards paleontologists, paleontologists haven't got the advantage of knowing that in living animals, it, living animals demonstrate that, for example, if there's a... Um, if there's a what do you call what do you call like a uh, oh dear if there's a certain <laughs> Darren's kind of punching there. his flat yeah. palm I'm not yeah downwards I'm, I'm trying to imagine okay so a joint like this how do you describe that like a cup or yeah, a saddle if there's like if there's like a okay there's a concave surface and a convex one fitting into it yeah. then when you're looking at the bones right you can do this okay yeah so i'm i'm rotating my fist in my cupped palm right imagine you're looking at bones you think all oh, this can only work this way okay but then it turns out that from the living animal where this cupped surface of my palm is like a big a much larger cartilaginous structure it turns out and there's a whole cartilaginous capsule here with synovial fluid and everything. It turns out then living animals, yeah, they can do this, but they can also like do this, you know? It's like, it doesn't have to be like can that. Pull out of the joint somewhat and slide around and yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yes. yeah. So that is the case in zygopophyses. And this is, for those of you not yeah. familiar with these terms, zygopophyses are these like interlocking, like tongue in groove systems that are present along the upper surfaces of vertebrae. From dry bones, you think they have to be constrained to being tightly fitted together, but in living animals, they aren't. They can they can virtually disarticulate, and that's been established from dissections and from X-rays and uh, you know other. Yeah, I think it's easy to see why no one really studied this because you look at a living animal and yes, it can do it. So what? There's nothing to study, right? Whereas you can see why paleontologists have run into this and had to work backwards is it wait a second yeah. how do we know that how does this work in living animals but you can mm. see why that wasn't studied to start with because yeah giraffes do that with their neck we don't really need yeah. to um you know it's not a pressing question whereas right there seems to be okay, other so that's pressing what, so questions I, think. I guess yeah so that's why i think it's questions asked by paleontologists have inspired people often from a paleontological background, to look at living animals. So some of the stuff that's, that's now been published on, like, there, there are some things out there on ostrich necks and giraffe necks, and I think they've been led by paleo questions asked by paleontologists. So yep. I forget how I started on that little tangent, but um, there you go. Plesiosaur neck, the newspaper. Yeah, but why? But why did I start going on about? Oh, I know because there's yeah, there's like hypotheses, the weird things. Yeah, the things that people thought were a problem turns out they're not a problem. But you could only know that once you got this new information on living animals, which didn't exist previously. So I don't mean to blame people like Arthur Cruikshank and Mike Overhart and whoever was talking about stiff pleasures or necks. I, I don't want to blame them because they didn't have that knowledge on living animals. Mm. Okay. Okay. Maybe we'll revisit Please Tools again one day. There's an awful lot of stuff to say about yeah. them. It's great. Yeah. Fascinating. Maybe we should do a like a behavior and morphology or something episode about them. Yeah, that sort of thing. Everything that isn't phylogeny. Yeah, I've got a lot to say about their like social behavior and their, you know, um, their, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. So 
The next jingle, which you've made, John has made some jingles, which is why we got that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. Lots of jingles. <laughs> news from the world of Darren and John. So, is there any news from the you world? Ne- of you, John? Need, you need John? to do a little, little song for me. Uh, <laughs> okay. okay, okay. Ready? Yeah. Uh, news from the world of Darren and John. <laughs> I love it. Hold on, hold on. Let me do that again. Let me do that again. I'm going to hold my ceramic Pekingese. <laughs> News from the world of Darren and John. Okay, great. Um, no, I don't. As usual, <laughs> I don't have any news. Do you have any news, Darren? Well, well, cracks knuckles. Uh, okay, what's been my main aim in life over the last several years? Don't say that thing. <laughs> okay, it's been it's been to move it's been to leave Scientific American. Yep. Guess what? Guess what I've done? You've left Scientific American. So I've long left suckers. That cesspool, that <laughs> urine soaked hellhole <laughs> of no offense. <laughs> Scientific American. Um I I've explained it all at the new Tetrapod Zoology. So Tetrapod Zoology, TetZoo is now in its fourth iteration. TetZoo version four is at TetZoo.com, <laughs> hosted by John. <laughs> um, yeah, so the TetZoo.com is no longer just the home of the podcast. It's now also the home of the blog. So far, I've only published a couple of things, saying basically, well, here I am, let's set up shop here. I've published a, a, a long article on the genitals of bigfoot there's a an interesting story there i've published a couple of book reviews on new dinosaurs new dinosaur books and i published a rather strange article on a, a, a piece of correspondence from phil curry um and there's a new article i'm aiming to publish today or tomorrow which we'll come back to in a second so um yeah uh as, as i've surely said before scientific american just Brilliant company to be associated with, um, you know, good brand. Uh, I think it was good for me, you know, in terms of, I don't know, in, t- in terms of kudos. But in terms of what I actually want to do as a blogger, no, the absolute opposite of good for me. Uh, extremely restrictive. They, it got to the stage where they were removing whole articles. In one case, right, get this. In one case, I published an article that was on I published these birthday articles like, you know, Tetrapod Zoology has passed another yes, you know, another mm-hmm. year old. Birthday's twenty first of January. And of course I used that to provide a review of the year. And in my, part of my review of the year, I included a photograph taken of me giving a talk, right? <laughs> but the photo wasn't taken by me, strangely enough. It was taken by Jed Taylor, our good friend and brilliant artist. And they said, you've got to get permission from Jed. So I said, yeah, he gave me permission when he took the photo. And they said, no, that's not good enough. So I said, okay, Jed, can you give me permission? And he said, yeah, I'll give you full permission. So I said, here's a message from Jed. He says, I'll give you full permission. They said, no, that's not good enough. I said, you've got to fill out this paperwork. So I said, sorry, Jed, I still need you to fill out this paperwork. Send in the paperwork. Basically, you've got to fill in stuff saying, you know, I, Jed Taylor, hereby provide Scientific American full information in perpetuity throughout the universe. He's right. And that still wasn't good enough. So they took the entire message down. Sorry, message. The entire article down, and it's still not up. To this day, it's removed from the 
basically they were teaching me a lesson because I'm not I wasn't playing by the rules because the way I blog I cannot I cannot have like bear in mind each article I use like 10 to 20 photo images I can't get them all ready beforehand and send them off and then wait for them to give me permission I have to when I do have time to blog which is typically in the small hours of the morning I have to compile and insert the images like then and there I'm not I know that's a crappy excuse. You know, I could change my ways, but frankly, uh, no, when they... no, no. The better. Don't worry about any of that. The better excuse is that. What possible objection could people have to using the images in the way you do? Now, if someone really, if you do make some sort of like you take, I don't know, someone's wildlife photography and they they want you to take it down, I'm sure you'll do it, right? But. Most of the stuff you're doing is just stupid normal stuff, right? <laughs> someone taking, yeah, but someone taking a photo of you and saying, yeah, you can put that on your blog. I mean, this is not, copyright was not designed to be this absurdly strict, right? Mm-hmm. And Scientific American's interpretation of it is ridiculous. Um, that said, Jed, don't sue us if you put that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so tetsu.com is now a thing okay the, i mean the i mean the the the, the blog being at tetsu.com is now a thing which leaving scientific american okay i i don't have a reliable revenue stream so that a goodbye hundreds of pounds a month which is what i've been paid so um so everyone yeah, head on. over to that pat- patreon <laughs> forward slash yeah. Tetsu? Thanks to those who pulled me on Patreon. But, uh, yeah, um, hopefully I'll, I'll make it to just be able to sit back and do nothing but blog. Right? Eventually, that's the aim. And so, uh, on this um, subject, because we moved the blog there, it and okay, it's just annoying technical stuff. But I thought podcast catchers would um, ignore ordinary blog posts because they didn't have an audio file in them. But it turns out lots of them don't. They just say, oh, this is a really good, interesting podcast episode, but I can't find the audio file, so it's broken. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had to move the podcast feed off the main tetzu.com URL. So if you're listening to this podcast, this will be the last podcast put up in that main feed. So you need to resubscribe to the podcast, which is at tetsu.com forward slash podcast, and then you can do question mark format RSS, but there's links on the website anyway, so yeah, please resubscribe to the podcast at the new URL. Okay, what's next? Um, So a reminder that on September the 11th, 2018, at Conway Hall in London, there is the onstage Dougal Dixon events, where I will be talking to Dougal about his various projects, especially his book originally published 1981, After Man, which we discussed, I don't know, possibly last episode. So September the 11th, check it out. Um, <clears throat> and on a similar event, a similar, well, a similar vein, uh, TetsuCon 6th and 7th of October, also in London, this time at The Venue, which is part of 
UCL, University College London. Mm. God, I always get it wrong. Whatever. Yeah, uh, London University, yeah. I think. <laughs> London University. Yeah, um, yeah. Our, our first two-day Tetsucon is the fifth one. And a uh, very impressive lineup of uh, speakers and presenters and a whole bunch of other stuff. So yep. go to the Tetsucon page on tetsu.com. A um, couple of bookie things, right? First of all, now... I'm constantly busy with work for Dawn and Kindersley, which, mm, yeah, well, someone's going to do it. And um, <clears throat> so this this is out. It's just called The Dinosaurs Book, and it's written by John Woodward, who I've worked with on quite a few occasions. He's pretty good. Um, I don't mean to have a downer about Dawn and Kindersley. Dawn and Kindersley are like a really good company. They, re- they really are... Uh, they're one of a few companies I've worked with that really do like care about you know how stuff is presented for kids. They do want to do it right, but my main story arc with Dorling Kinsley, having worked with them since the late 1990s, is that when I, you know, years and years and years of being on board with them, they've had all this imagery that, particularly of dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals, which is terrible like the worst images of prehistoric animals you've ever seen and that's not their fault i've said this a hundred times and i feel bad and guilty about it every single time i say it but i'm gonna say it again Dorling kinnersley and these other companies that have got this really terrible dinosaur art have got that really terrible dinosaur art because the consultants they have employed told them that it was good yeah and i have the names on file <laughs> I have messages from the paleontologists concerned because I've asked them about it many times. Why did you say okay to this? There's a bunch of paleontologists who are pretty famous and pretty respected people and are actually really good scientists. I've got nothing against them as scientists. And they have told companies like Dawn and Kinsley that those really awful monsters are good. So don't blame the companies like Dawn and Kinsley. Blame some of the consultants they've used in the past. Dawn and Kinsley have been aware of this for years. But if you are in a cycle where you're publishing like literally 10 children's books a year, on dinosaurs, which is what they have to do. That's their model. Um, can you imagine suddenly stopping that, replacing all of your images and starting from scratch? That is a difficult thing to do. Uh, you might say impossible. Um, but last year, they did it. They got rid of their existing uh, dinosaur picture library, and they went to great efforts to replace everything now they've mostly used the work of a guy called james cuther who's pretty good i'm not gonna say he's the best paleo artist in the world Mm -hmm. but he's pretty good i mean for example look we're talking about dinosaurs like that i'm showing john a steracosaurus there so like you'd agree that's pretty good that's certainly good compared to some of the stuff that um we've had to deal with in the past so this book is full of his images you know here's some you know spinosaurs and allosaurs again yeah. that that's, that's the kind that's of stuff we're talking about there are some problems as goes how much feathers he puts on animals he's one of these cg artists who like puts on feathers individually which means that you end up with animals with you know like an unrealistically low number of feathers uh, but you know he's aware of that and in the end it's a compromise there's other artists that have done stuff as well like peter minister does stuff like that and mm-hmm. 
And again, I'm not saying this stuff is like, you know, the best ever. It's it's really hard to, you know, for, for the sort of budgets involved and timeframes involved, you can't get the best ever stuff done. You can't go through multiple iterations and multiple attempts to get things right. But the take home point is this is miles away from some of the offerings in the past and you have to understand the way this industry works um before you could say harsh harsh things about it they they really are trying we've tried really hard we acknowledge it's not perfect but it's a major improvement on what's gone before so some of you will know what i'm talking about some of you better read between the lines and um i think that's interesting and i I think i think we are you know the world is gradually becoming a better place thanks to this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we no, no, but I have noticed this. It's finally coming through, right? The uh, Jurassic Park dinosaurs are starting to wane, and we're starting to get, you know, modern look dinosaurs filtering through into pop pop culture in all respects, not just in a few projects. It it is starting to work. And who's mostly responsible for this, John? Who's mostly responsible for it? Uh, Arthur Crookshank. The late Arthur Crookshank. <laughs> yeah. Um, also on the subject Angela of Angela Milner, probably. <laughs> um, John Civic. John Civic. <laughs> right. <laughs> Moving okay, away. So, yeah. Um, my book, published with Paul Barrett at the Natural History Museum, Dinosaurs, How They Lived and Evolved, has just within the last week been published in Russian. Hmm. And uh, I haven't seen a copy yet, but one is on its way to me. I'm very pleased with that. And it was great to work with uh, Konstantin. I've forgotten his uh, name. Apologies to him right now. But um, yeah, I worked with a you know really good translator. He had loads of really intelligent questions about you know how to get the translation as, as right as best he could. So um, yeah, that's, uh, that's cool. And the text for this translation is actually the text of the second edition of Dinosaurs, How They Lived and Evolved, which uh, hasn't yet published, had been published in English. So the first the first Russian edition <laughs> is actually the second, the text of the second edition. So they've got a load of, Paul and I changed loads of things for the second edition. Uh, various tiny mistakes that we've made in the first edition, but also updates according to, you know, new scientific ideas ranging from like, across the board, not just the whole Ornithoskeleta thing, which we've got in there. Um, <clears throat> okay, so that's that. Uh, publications, okay, Phylocode, the Phylocode Companion volume. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know... <laughs> <laughs> uh, years back years back, I mean it's probably before the turn of the century a team of phylogeneticists Jacques Gautier Kevin Takiro Phil Cantino and others they basically wanted to implement a formal way of slapping names on nodes and lineages they wanted to have like a specific like a specific code where you know there's rules that are applied <clears throat> they wanted to call it the Philo Code, and then they wanted a companion volume where select groups of authors, select like teams of experts, go through all the different groups of organisms and come up with sort of best practice like definitions for this is the name, let's say, mammalia, 
And this is why we apply it to that specific node and a whole discussion about it and a, and a validation and, you know, justification for why mammalia should be used for that specific group and not any other. Um, so uh, me and a bunch of other people, I'm not particularly important as goes, you know, phylogenetic work on dinosaurs, but um, I sort of worked with teams of others to devise chapters on the sauropods and their relatives, the sauropodomorphs, and also theropods. And we came up with, you know, like best practice recommendations for how we should use these terms. The, the, the articles were submitted sometime round about, oh my God, the early 2000s. <laughs> I've got no recollection. And they were accepted for publication like, you know, two days ago. <laughs> So, Jack Gautier, with all due respect to him, thinks that the main, you know, um, the operating procedure here should be a constant dialogue about the work, a constant dialogue. So there should be like, so you shouldn't be ashamed or think it's weird that there are like 20 rounds of revision. So you make the change and then they send it back and ask for another change and you send it back and then they now want this changed or you send it back and how have you considered this? And and it doesn't take too long, especially when you talk about it stretching over decades for this to be fairly soul destroying and seem quite, you know, basically a waste of time, especially when any interest in the file. Code. We, we covered this a while ago, probably in the Ornithoskeleta um, yeah. uh, one we did podcast um it yeah it basically it's like it's now redundant and people have forgotten about it and and people have moved on and are devising their own phylogenetic recommendations anyway so uh so i just want to say you know i could say more about it there is a mike taylor's gonna write a lot about it once it's published because he wasn't not happy about what what happened but um not just because he couldn't handle the delay but because of the actual specific the mechanics of putting the thing together yeah yeah i mean it's just sort of a almost a case study in pathological how to not get things done right (laughs) i wasn't gonna say it i mean seriously now it was it was 1998 that they thought they should get this together it's 20 years they haven't got it together i mean 20 years it's just no No, no, no. And although that's a joke. Yeah, also, they, they, what we've discovered is we don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it we might don't. have been nice to have it really early on, and everyone was on the same page. But now there's a whole <clears> bunch of things which people are doing, and names we've applied already and been using for ages. And if it comes through now, it'll be a big mess. I think it'll basically be in irrelevance now. Yeah, I don't think it'll be paid attention to. And I can't, I can't say I've felt fully, you know, committed to. <laughs> to seeing it seriously here's another revision okay fine yeah what here yeah. we've slapped on a bunch of new authors yeah whatever fine <laughs> we've taken you off the authorship <laughs> fine <laughs> We're slightly exaggerating but that's more or less what's happened so um uh yeah there we go yeah okay that's a shame oh, oh, oh and, and one last thing i should say that although i say it's just been accepted for publication they also said that in like 2006 so they they said back then so, right, it's now accepted for publication. You can now cite it as impress on your CV or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. I never needed to, but, <laughs> but like, yeah. Um, okay. Um, I'm still working on the Tyrannus monograph. <clears throat> excuse me. 
uh, that's taken like literally months and it's probably going to take me some more months because that's literally uh, the only way I can work. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that, but that's how it is. Take that, listeners. Take that. I want it done. I want it. The sooner it's out of the way, the sooner I can do other stuff. Colin Trevorrow. My, my buddy, Colin Trevorrow. So, um, we've discussed dinosaurs in the wild a few times, and you have until the 2nd of September to go and see it before it is done, or it's finished. That's it. So, if you're in the UK and you're interested in dinosaurs and you want to see what we've done, get yourself to the Greenwich, Greenwich Peninsula in London near the O2. It's about a 20-minute walk from the O2 and go and see dinosaurs in the world. Um, there's nothing else like it worldwide. I've discussed it at length before, and I've also written about it on Tetrapod Zoology. Well, about two weeks ago, Colin Trevorrow visited it with his family and um, went and spoke to the creative director uh, afterwards and said, wow, I really like it. It's really cool. That's the end of that, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, "Did anyone take any selfies with Colin Trevor?" I don't, I don't like, I don't have any personal opinion about Colin Trevor. I'm sure he's a perfectly nice person, but it's like you should have used this as a, you know, some way of some for some like cheap publicity. Yep. But, um, but they they didn't, and he he emailed around afterwards and and just said, you know, well done, really enjoyed it. And of course, those of us interested in what he's done with those Jurassic World films <clears throat> but I said I haven't seen the newest one you have of course um, mm. yeah a lot of us think there's going to be more of those films that's not directed by him though I made a mistake last when I was talking about it. it's not directed by Colin Trevor it's directed by someone else yes but apparently Colin is going to be directing the next one mm. so okay if you uh, if you're interested to know what I think about it and you may well not be go and google cnn jurassic world darren h because i wrote an article for cnn where i said how disappointed i was in the first jurassic world film um well of course you know a lot of us interested in things like public education and the portrayal of dinosaurs in the media and in our work would like it if they did portray not those jurassic world jurassic park scaly dragony things but so it's uh, encouraging that Colin Trevorrow has seen Dinosaurs as well and it does seem to be interested, is at least aware of this movement of like people trying to portray dinosaurs accurately. So there was a discussion happening on Twitter. I've forgotten who was involved and I took grotesque advantage and said, hey, Colin, I hear you went to see Dinosaurs in the World and uh, I really hope you liked it. And let me know if you want to talk about dinosaurs. Smiley face, wink, wink, <laughs> emoticon. <laughs> emoji emoji <laughs> emoji yeah just just to throw that out there because you never know and he got back to me and he got back to me and he said yeah thanks not interested <laughs> no no he didn't he didn't he said yeah we really liked it he said well done to you and the team and that was it but you know because yeah. oh my god because do they still use Jack Horner as their scientific air quotes scientific consultant <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, clearly they're not interested in um, that it's aspect just a tick, of the tick box. Scientific yeah. consultant, yep, got one of them. Tick yeah, box. I, I don't know why they bother with the modern ones. Just no, don't see why they'd bother. 
right? It's he like getting and- a scientific consultant on a Godzilla film. Well, you can if you want, but it seems a bit... Anyway. Warner <laughs> himself even said that, no, they didn't pay attention to him. But I also, I, I, I just... I wonder whether he ha- he has actually given them ever good information on. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, du- no disrespect intended. Going, Don Lessam, who I've worked with now, Don Lessam was on the set of the first Jurassic Park film, mm-hmm. and Don Lessam has got these great stories about how there were things they were going to do in the film or things they were going to say. And Don Lessam explains how he stepped in and said, well, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. You should do this. And whatever you think of Don Lessam, they do. They were things that basically, you know, made things better. And I'm thinking, well, why did it take, no disrespect to Don, but why did it take Don to say that? Why didn't, why didn't Jack Horner already said that? Like, there's, there's, a, there's specific, specific scenes where Lessam says he was there and he had to put up his hands. Like, oh, excuse me, sir. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't be saying that. You should say this. And Spielberg's like, who said that? Who said that? <laughs> oh, it's that guy with the moustache. Because <laughs> obviously, you don't know who Don Lessam is. Just some, just another lackey on the set. Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that um, a lot of these projects use scientific consultants as inspiration not as sort of a veto power right so they Mm. say give us some ideas about dinosaurs that we can plug into this if we want to Mm -hmm. it's not like tell us what's wrong and we won't do it it's Mm. give us some crazy ideas maybe we'll we'll use it in our creative process i think that's the way a lot of these things work right uh you've done that what's new at ted zoo yeah, I figured I'd kind of done that because I already mentioned the article about... All right, and we've been going for a while, while now before we've got to our main event. So, main event. Could we domesticate dinosaurs? Yeah. Now, um, this is on my mind because, uh, again, it's kind of linked to the whole Jurassic World thing where they have trained dinosaurs and whatnot. I've seen a few things online where this has been asked... You know, there are these websites where you can ask a question and then people, ostensible experts, as well as anyone who thinks they might know the answer, can provide an answer. Mm-hmm. Quora, Quora is mm-hmm. one such website, and there's a few others. And the answers range from the reasonably good to the completely useless. <laughs> and <Yep>. uh, <laughs> having seen this question asked, could we domesticate dinosaurs? So far, all I've seen are completely useless answers. So I was inspired to write about it myself. And uh, and a lengthy article on this issue is coming to Tedgeboard Zoology. So, but that's probably going to appear before this podcast does. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I'm going to like spoil what I've written in the article. And what I've written in the article is I would like to think predictable anyway, although having said that, I'm surprised that it wasn't provided in the answers provided by ostensible experts because they gave wishy-washy things like, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> I love that. You get a question and the answer is, I don't know. What? <laughs> well... <laughs> Okay, I'll tell you specifically what happened, and I don't want to mention names because it seems, again, it seems unduly mean. But someone said, you could be domesticate dinosaurs, and the ostensible expert said, this is the skeleton of a zebra. This is the skeleton of a horse. One of these animals is domesticated, and one of them isn't. But how could you tell from its bones? Eh, you couldn't, you see? So, bye! (laughs) And I was like, 
What kind of an answer was that? <laughs> and to make it worse, it didn't even use a real zebra skeleton anyway. They just used two generic horse-type skeletons. <laughs> I was like, you silly person. That is the most useless thing you could possibly say. How does that answer the question? Because what are you, what are you saying? Are you saying that this is a zebra and zebra, everyone knows that it's, in, it's impossible to domesticate zebras. No, it's not. We just haven't done it because yeah. we just haven't, as we've discussed before. So my answer on could we domesticate dinosaurs is imaginary world where we're living alongside non-bird mesozoic dinosaurs is given that what given what domestication is, selective breeding creating some kind of pool of some population that's distinct from the wild ancestors which we're using in some way you know, for companionship ornamentation or you know for food or you know labor or whatever given that's what domestication is given that we've been very good at doing it to organisms across the entire pantheon of life given that there are caveats like there are there are okay now let's see the animals there are animals that we seemingly can't domesticate maybe because we haven't tried hard enough maybe because we haven't needed to or maybe we can't just because it's like too much of a hassle when there's others other options available given all these caveats yes we could domesticate dinosaurs i'm sure we could <clears throat> non-bird dinosaurs we could you know selectively breed them and utilize them and um you've got Problems like super giant animals that once they get to a certain size become absolutely uncontrollable no matter what you do. You wouldn't domesticate those. But, you know, mid-sized, rapidly growing species, um, they don't even have to be intelligent. Intel intelligence is a total red herring. You know, intelligence got nothing to do with domestication. It is relevant to training and how, if you're going to use the animals as companions or herding animals or something but um in terms of just general domestication no so um <clears throat> there we go job jobbed main event job. over exactly. yep exactly so okay. I've somehow i've managed to string that out into nearly three thousand words but that's basically <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting that we have managed to domesticate some animals that are so big that they're uncontrollable um you know, if but they decide we? to be. But have we? Well, elephants are fairly uncontrollable uh -huh, if they decide not to be controlled. Uh, have they we said... domesticated? Have we domesticated elephants? I think so, yeah. Oh, I don't think we have. How do you figure that? Because how, because how do you get an elephant if you want to train one? You have to go and capture them from the wild. We don't have... Uh, like maintained captive populations of elephants that are different from the wild type ancestors. Mm -hmm. You have to train elephants, and even when you've got a trained elephant, it's. I think I'm gonna have to go away and read about this. Like, this is the one bit I haven't. I haven't finished the article. I need to. Do, I need to do this. But I don't think they are technically domesticated. What's the difference? They're not, because it's not a distinct population that's only being utilized. For a specific function, it's people taking right. them from the wild, training them, right. and the training might not even work. So, like, there are elephants that go bad and have to be released or killed. Yes, but <clears throat> I would say that this is not necessarily a problem with the intrinsic domesticability of elephants. Yeah, it's more to do with having an elephant farm is really difficult. 
So you may as well let them run free and just take one occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Which would be true of very large um, dinosaurs as well, I guess. Mm. But I don't, you know... So if you look at in the past, obviously elephants are tremendously useful for things because they're so goddamn strong, right? You can imagine people wanting to um, domesticate very large dinosaurs. You know, you domesticate a large sauropod and you can move just about anything if you want to. Sorry, let's let's not say domesticate train or... No, what's a word we can use for this? Um, well, why is train the wrong word? Train's the right word. It? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So, yeah, if you could train sauropods, <laughs> then, yeah, you can do pretty much anything that humans have thought up about doing so far, right? Drag yeah. enormous things around. Um, and obviously, a part of uh, a lot of um, animals have been trained for, for war and things like that. Mm. I mean, I should imagine a war sauropod was a pretty formidable beast. <laughs> um, yeah, up, would have been up until the invention of modern weapons, right? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, so there'd be uh, there'd be a lot of pressure to do it, even the very largest yeah. ones, especially the very largest ones. I guess is what I'm saying. Well, if if we're playing with the idea of you know speculative alternative timeline scenario things then you can come up with all kinds of workarounds for every problem you could have so even let's say you've got war sauropods well we don't yeah and let's then consider the possibilities as goes what technological stage our civilization is at even if you do then have um you know you're going up against a side that's got tanks and cannons and whatever well you can you can still come up with a workaround like well my armored my war sauropods are armored with an impenetrable armor or they've got laser shielding or they are um enhanced sauropods that can predict and target and destroy enemy uh, we, don't, we don't need to go into all that bollocks no i think what we need to to constrain this a little bit don't ruin this for me john <laughs> is that it's pretty much our history but for some reason there's dinosaurs around right non-bird dinosaurs yeah non-bird dinosaurs um and in that case, I can see sauropods being useful in the same way elephants were, for the same sorts of things in the same time periods and so on. Of course, you know, intelligence may be a red herring in some ways in terms of can they be domesticated or trained somewhat, but there might be an issue there with... Um, training sauropods for certain tasks i don't know there might be animals that you can't train that you you literally can't get them to do certain stuff in which case it may not be possible ah although that's an interesting philosophical point what is it philosophical theoretical point it doesn't seem like that could be true i mean you might not be able to train them to do things that you want them to do necessarily (laughs) but you could you can modify their behavior by modifying their um, rewards and punishments, right? If an animal can't, literally cannot be trained, then it has no brain, because that's the whole point of a brain, to adapt in that respect. So, but I suppose when you're talking about training animals for domestications, 
you want them to generally walk in a certain direction when told and stop. A For these big animals, demands. right? Yeah, yeah, basic things <clears throat> like that, right? Mm. Um, mm. And yeah, maybe it's possible that some animals just won't ever do that. I don't know. It's funny that that with real world domestic animals, there's there's creatures where we probably can't get them to do a certain thing, or at least that's what we think at the moment. You can't get something to to follow a command because it you don't you don't have the ability to to communicate what you mean to that organism. Mm. Like so, for example, Flame, my bearded dragon, well, actually my wife's bearded dragon pet, is trained and she'll follow like a few things that look like she's following the commands. Like she can leave her terrarium and she'll go back in the terrarium. But she can't go across we can't train her to go across the room and pick something up in her mouth and take it back to her thing. Now I'm not saying that you couldn't do that after like, you know, decades of training, but it's so difficult that it's more trouble than it's worth. And that might be because I actually think bearded dragons are relatively smart as animals go. But there's some, obviously, some, you know, um, intelligence limiting factor. On the other side of things, right, there's also animals that are really quite, you know, way cleverer than a bearded dragon, and they won't do things because they've decided they don't want to. People <laughs> yeah. talk about <laughs> donkeys being famously stubborn, and, you know, there's cases where you can't get, and you can't, like, get a dog on a lead to go a certain way or something. That's because it's decided it's not going to do that. So you've got both animals won't always follow commands because they can't mm. or because they because they they won't. And yeah. you just don't know what what those things are, you know, going to be the case in. Yeah, I think cats are a pretty good example of this. They're, it's <laughs> difficult to modify the behavior of a cat, way more difficult than a dog. But I don't think they're less intelligent. They just don't want to do what you tell them. I think they are. I think they are less intelligent. Cats you think cats are. are less intelligent than dogs? Easily. Yeah, I think cats are hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't, that's not because I have an anti-cat bias. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm neither, I'm, I'm neither pro-dog nor pro-cat. I, I feel I like both the same. But, um, yeah, I just don't think cats have got anywhere close to... Because maybe, whether it's to do with the long co-evolution we've had with dogs or maybe just because they're a totally different kind of animal, you know, dogs have got this very nuanced, very sophisticated... Uh, like understanding of everything about people and cats just don't they just they really just don't have that yeah so, yeah no i agree with that i think that's what makes them trainable um i, I just don't think that yeah i don't see why dogs would be tremendously more intelligent than cats given their overall anatomy and place in the world and brain size well, and no, all that no come on they come, they come from a totally different social system and everything don't they well some of them do well, no, lions, dogs in lions, for example, dogs in general. To... Oh, okay. Well, domestic. Well, we're not talking about lions. Though. We're talking about the domestic cat. Yeah, but I don't believe they would be that different in terms of brain power, right? Well, a lion, lion? lion would be different to a domesticated cat because of size stuff. But anatomy-wise and evolution-wise, I just don't see why you end up with cats being way less intelligent than dogs. And why do they have a brain that's sort of similar in size? I mean, I just... don't. Dogs' brains much bigger for their size. Dog brain. Dog, dog brains are huge. The, the brains of small dogs are bigger than those of people for their pr- pr- proportional size. Cat brains aren't. Cat I brains thought they were all big. around two point, like their EQ or whatever, was all around 
Oh, God, I hate this when I don't remember things properly and you're going to wipe the floor with me. But I thought their EQ was similar. No, right. dogs are dogs are off the chart. I didn't think I they were, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what makes you think you're going to find the, the, the information on Google? Good luck. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's been proven, John, that uh, no, dogs are 100 times smarter than cats. Uh, this is actually the second hit in Google. Dogs are 100 times oh, smarter than cats. Just tell me the answer. Don't give me this great big wall of text. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> okay, it does say that... We now come yeah, okay, go ahead. to the part of the podcast called John Looks at Google. <laughs> <laughs> now it's giving me a pop-up telling me to sign up to their newsletter or whatever, so screw them. Closing that. <clears throat> Next topic. What were we even talking about? Oh, yeah, we were talking about Dom- uh, domestication of dinosaurs. Yeah. Right, mm. so uh, non-avian dinosaurs, to be specific. Um... So, if you want dinosaurs to do specific... Yeah. I guess, is there a correlation when we want things to do fairly specific tasks with intelligence? Obviously, we've domesticated some some animals that are not very intelligent compared to others. Mm. But Mm. for some tasks... Do we need a certain unless, level of intelligence? Again, let's be let's let's be clear. I know this is not what you're saying, but the, the intelligence is irrelevant to domestication. Irrelevant because domestication means you're creating a population that you're maintaining and you're using it in some way, right? So, domestic crops has that got anything to do with intelligence? Yeah. Domestic domestic fish, yeah. you know, some of our domestic fish are actually pretty smart. You know, goldfishes and stuff they they can be trained to do pretty sophisticated things. But the other domesticated fish we've got, you know. Koi carp and shibunkins and fanta. Oh my God. Maybe they're all of the same intelligence. I don't bloody know. But um, yeah, I, I just think that's a, that's a red herring. Because there's no reason why you couldn't domesticate, you know, like insects. In fact, I don't. I've, I've been thinking about silk, the silk moth, mm. which isn't, you know, which we. I, I believe that's regarded as a domesticated insect. And yep. I wonder if there's others. I wonder if we have domesticated various, you know, crustaceans and mollusks that mm. have been maintained in captivity for, for centuries in cases. I, I, I need to look into this. Um, there's one book that covers it really well, Zerner's The History of Domesticated Animals, I think it's called, which is... Uh, yeah. No, it's just called Domesticated Animals. So, <clears throat> yeah. But if, it, but if you're talking about animals that you want to work with and communicate with... Because I yes, think that's then... sort of a bit implied in the question. Because, yeah, of course we could probably farm some dinosaurs, right? Yeah. Just make sure they can't get out and go in and kill them every now and again. I mean, yeah, it's sort of trivial, yes, right? Well, yeah. yeah. So, but so I why think... don't people think that when they're asked the question? They don't. <laughs> they always think, ooh, it has to be, is it as clever as a dog? So that's a different issue. Because they're actually talking about training. Yeah. Um, and then domesticating the, uh, and for a task or actually living with it. You know, domestication in the urban sense, maybe, right? That you have it as a pet. Yeah. Having it as a house, you know, house yeah, pet. Yeah. 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 Which, again, again, I think the general answer there has got to be yes, because, because you know enough about living animals to know that. Um, first of all, so I, in the article I've written, I try and say, you know, remember, it's not just mammals and it's also not just like parrots that you can live with. The people, there are people that have got trained, you know, so first of all, chickens, well, that is itself a red herring because chickens are not, as we've covered on the podcast before, chickens are not stupid birds, despite what people think. They're actually somewhere in the middle in terms of alien intelligence. 
alien? I mean, I, I just, I just <laughs> alien. say alien intelligence. Oh no, oh no, the conspiracy's <laughs> out. Um, avian intelligence. Chickens are pretty smart as birds. But even birds that aren't, air quotes, pretty smart, you know, can be can be friends with humans and we can, in theory, domesticate them. Like, there are, there are very friendly ratites, which are supposed to be as dumb as a rock and incapable of walking through an open door and stuff. And, you, you know, they can be trained and have close bonds with humans. There's no reason why you couldn't domesticate those. And then non-bird reptiles. Um, there's trained, you know, turtles, snakes, lizards. Uh, there's certainly people that have got very close relationships, very good bonds with like tegus, monitor lizards. Again, is it are they smarter than non-bird dinosaurs? Are they on par with them, or are they, you know, like air quotes less intelligent than those than those animals? I, I think there's what I'm getting at is there's a selection of living animals that people can live with as house pets. They can train, they can bond with that are of a similar or lesser intelligence, whatever we mean by that term, God, I hate the term intelligence, um, to non-bird dinosaurs, which indicates that for sure, for sure, you could have a friendly, cuddly, hypsilophodon, small-horned dinosaur, or velociraptor. That's what I think. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, why not? Uh, (laughs) Of course, a lot of non-avian dinosaurs are quite as a indeed a lot of modern animals but a lot of a lot of non-avian dinosaurs seem particularly um formidable and dangerous animals you know yeah. protoceratops for example yeah uh, small well, it's actually not really got horns but there you go small horn dinosaur yeah you look at that so beak and you think if it just nipped you it yeah. could it could probably bite nearly through your arm. I mean, it's cool. it's yeah. uh, pretty. <laughs> but then, and if we're talking about domesticated animals, we would have, you know, we would have got a solution to this. We would have either made them more, more like innocuous anatomically. Mm-hmm. Like we would have bred them with, you know, soft mouths or something, yeah. bred out the beak, or they'd be trained and friendly. I mean, we all know that, like. You know, a wolf can bite off yeah, your fingers. A, yeah. a, a big parrot can remove fingers. Uh, and yet, you know, most people have got, when people have got pet ones or domesticated ones, they um, they aren't like that. You know, it's very, un, very weird to have a, yeah, doing a podcast. Yeah. <clears throat> no. No, you can't. Sorry, Emma. Um, so where were we? Uh, yes, that we've bred it. <laughs> that we've bred the danger out of them, either physically or temperamentally, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I do think this is a little bit of a problem in... We've managed to do that in terms of predators, with dogs, right? Yeah. But somewhat less so with cats. So, you know, a cat that was much bigger than a domestic cat starts to become a problem. Even if they're fairly friendly, just the occasional temperamental scratch or whatever could be a serious problem. 
Yeah, and you've yeah. got to wonder about this with a lot of the smaller dinosaurs, right? Yeah, so so I, I I would agree, and I would say in that case we potentially wouldn't have this relationship with those with those animals, or there would only be exceptional cases where only like um, only a person that's willing to take that risk is physically up to it. And has got a strong bond with this animal and knows it inside out. They would be the only ones. The same as the same as, for example, there are people that have had pet, you know, like leopards or whatever. Okay, they're not domesticated leopards, but they had like a pet leopard. And yeah, I mean, they, they yeah, I don't want to say it's common, but yeah, lots of people have yeah. kept pet big cats. Absolutely, yeah. exactly. And they know, and there's a certain like, and you know, wolves or wolf uh, dog hybrids have have been and are kept as pets and it's like it's known that this is a risky thing this is a risky thing at any one moment you know the wrong stimulus could 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 uh, um yeah send this could ruin things could make it go bad oh go away i can't can't podcast with children around go on scram shoot go back come come back in a minute i'll be finished in a minute it's one o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> um yeah uh, i i i cover all this stuff see now that moth is on the on the computer domesticated moth it's not a domesticated moth it's, it's in a, a house moth. <laughs> <laughs> hasn't been in the house for generations you that don't know that it was there first darren yeah all right so there's a whole article written about it um there's loads more to say about it i've i've covered quite a lot of stuff and I, and I want to include lots of hilarious artwork of people with like you know like ornamental domestic dromaeosaurs and all kinds of stuff like that but um yeah I want right. it to be the go-to place for when people ask this artist question they actually get like a, a half decent answer okay I have not seen the shape of water so we can't do popular tat but we have been running for a while anyway so let's just finish up Let's finish it. Okay, so thanks for listening. I tweet at. He doesn't mind you at all. He's after somebody called Skywalker. Luke. I forgot I'm supposed to do lackluster Star Wars. <laughs> Lord Vader. Lord Vader set a trap. And we're the bait. Well, he's on his way. Perfect. You fixed this up all pretty good, didn't you? spits it out it says directions to the actor mm -hmm. my friend punch <laughs> at tetsu <laughs> 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 all right let's stop <laughs>